Hello and welcome to the Dismantle Racism Show, where our goal is to uncover, dismantle, and eradicate racism. We really want to create a world where racial equity exists for everyone. And we also want to create a world where we see a decrease in violence towards people just because they are different than we are. We want to create a world where Indeed, we can see racial harmony. Today, we are going to be talking about manifest destiny of racism, but we are also going to look at what has occurred in our nation over the last several weeks, in particular, uh, this past weekend, where we saw a shooting of people because of the color of their skin, where 10 people died and several others were wounded. We're going to get into that conversation a little bit today, but we really are going to talk about, again, manifest destiny of racism. I'm excited to have my guest here today who has done a lot of work in this area. We're going to hit a number of topics around racial justice. We're going to see where the conversation flows today. But as always, we want to begin our show by centering ourselves. And so I'm going to invite you to take a moment wherever you are to place your feet firmly on the floor if you can. And if you can close your eyes, that's great. If you can't, please don't. But find your breath to center yourself and to tune into that which gives you life. Take a moment to connect with your divine wisdom. That divine wisdom actually connects you with other individuals as well. That divine wisdom is what I call your sacred intelligence. It's that part of you that helps you to make intelligent choices. That part of you that helps you to manifest your greatness while simultaneously helping others to manifest theirs. So breathe in and out, tuning into that which gives you life. And if it gives you life, it supports you as you help to give others life. Your divine wisdom, your sacred intelligence will never tell you to do anything that's harmful to yourself or to other people. Your sacred intelligence will also empower you and teach you not to allow other people to do things that are harmful to you. So find that space, that breath, that reminds you of your power. And know that you have the power to change the status quo. You have the power to end racial separation. And know that the power of one contributes to the power of community. And I want you to take a deep breath in, sigh it out, and let's begin our show. Today, my guest is attorney Charles Robinson. And on our show today, we are going to be taking a look, as I said, a little bit at the origins of racism. We can't get into a long discussion about it, but we're going to take a look at how it manifests its values and how it's entangled with the American culture. But we also want to look at it in the context of what has happened in our nation over the last couple of days, because we're really only talking about one or two incidents, but we know that violence and racism actually occurs on a pretty consistent basis. We just don't hear about it in the news all the time. And so today we really want to explore some of these things. And Attorney Robinson is, again, the perfect person to have this conversation with. He's had extensive training and experience in labor employment law and, med and um, meditation. He's a graduate of the University of Wisconsin Law School. He's a former administrative law judge and special master for the courts and has managed disputes for universities, prisons, schools, and government agencies. He's provided training workshops and seminars for schools and businesses. And over the course of his professional career, 
Attorney Robinson has been an adjunct professor, and in my conversations with him, I know that he's taught courses on racial justice, for instance, and he's done a lot of work in mediation um, as well. And so I really think that the work that he brings to the table and his life mission and his purpose is very beneficial in our conversation today. One of the other things I think is really critical to note is that He's also done, he's a program leader for Landmark Worldwide, and he can talk a little bit about that as well, but he's facilitated conversations on restorative justice for youth and police officers. And so I think that his conversations are uh, relevant to us on the Dismantle Racism show because we talk a lot about how do we engage in this work? How do we teach others to engage in this work? So I'm going to uh, bring our guest on, Attorney Robinson. I want to welcome you to our show today. You have to unmute yourself. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. I'm so happy to be here and to have an opportunity to uh, be in this conversation. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it's a miracle that actually I'm here. Of course, my my friend and colleague um, couldn't make it, and she gave you my name, and and so. Well, and so that's that's the beauty of it, though, right? Yeah. So sometimes we plan for particular mm -hmm. things, and she just gave me your name, and the fact that you come with the experience you come with after such a horrific event. And I want us to get into that, but I, I want to start out by asking you, because you've been doing this work forever, and with every guest, I always like to ask the question, how do you stay grounded in doing this work? What, what's your sacred practice that you engage in? And I know a little bit about it uh, through my mutual colleague, but mm -hmm. tell us how you stay grounded. Well, I, I stay grounded and I've um, always stayed grounded since my grandmother had a vision for me and she shared that with me when I was three and a half years old. She was very, very spiritual. They, uh, my grandfather and my grandmother were the perfect Christians and um, they raised me for the first uh, three and a half years of my life. <clears throat> and then I reconnected with my mother but she said, the Lord has work for you to do. And so for most of my life, I'm wondering, well, what does she mean by that? And I'm still in that inquiry. And I knew I didn't want to be a preacher. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not, <laughs> but you are, you are, you are a minister. I didn't want to be one either, so that's okay. <laughs> but, you know, I discovered uh, a ministry in, um, in peace, healing, and collaboration. And so it took a while for me to, to notice that that really was my life purpose and the vision that my grandmother had for me before I was old enough to have one for myself. But I um, was always involved in circumstances in life that called on my being resilient, you know. Um, and a lot of it would, you know, had to do with race. And so um, that spiritual connection um, and, and foundation through the church. And then later on, um, I got involved with, with uh, a company that's now called Landmark. And out of my quest for self-development, and um, I did a lot of work on myself, both personally and professionally, uh, for the last what, 40 years I've been participating with Landmark and um, discovered a, um, the technology of transformation, mm -hmm. which provides velocity um, for whatever you're up to in life. Mm -hmm. Well, you know what I think is, is great about you saying this, because I think it's so important that we all have our work to do. Our all, we all need this space where we can spend time and evolve and transform. And I think particularly for people of color, 
that it is important for us to do our healing work that we need to do because we know that race is a made-up construct and you'll talk about that a little bit but it's a made-up construct but we're all a part of this this vortex this system that we've had to respond to racism and figure out how to navigate racism how to navigate navigate race even when things aren't necessarily racism we're still navigating all the time these systems right and so the work that you're talking about doing is not just around race but it shows that we still we need to do our own personal and internal work and i love religion that's great we can all be in church every sunday and do whatever we need but unless we're doing the transformative work that hopefully the minister is is preaching about and teaching about we stay in that same place, right? Mm -hmm. um, so um, I wanna just get into, I just mentioned that race is a made up construct. Talk to me a little bit, and, and I know we'll probably have to take a break in, in a few minutes, but talk to me a little bit about the social construction of race and the beingness of race, because I know through your work with Landmark and just all the work you've done around language, uh, talk a little bit about where does this come from? Well, you know, my, like I said, my religious orientation and spiritual connection had me be in Sunday school quite a bit. And in fact, I got a, I received a, um, an award um, for not missing Sunday school for five years straight. So I had perfect attendance for five years straight. But we, we so I was able to learn a lot of lessons that, um, that I can use now. And, and, and many of those lessons are not that dissimilar from the work that, that I've been doing with, with Landmark, for example. Like in the beginning was the word, the word was with God and the word was God. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, when you look at Landmark, you know, we, we come from the philosophy that life is a conversation. And without language, nothing would exist. So, I mean, that's just how powerful the languaging process is. And also that we're made in the image of God. And then, you know, like I see myself as a spiritual being, you know, housed in this body. Right. But, um, you know, we, we have, we're made in the image of God. God is a spirit. So the spirit of God is in us. So, you know, that gives me a sense of power. Mm -hmm. So, and then, so like, and then the work that that we do in landmark we look at creating from nothing you know when you get in get in touch with a vision for a pos or possibility mm -hmm. and you're able to create a new possibility so i want to talk about then that creating from nothing and how we've created racism from the language that we've used we've created this this non-existent thing and we've brought it into being. We're gonna take a quick break. And mm -hmm. when we come back, I'd like you to talk about that concept a little bit more. Okay. Uh, because of course there's a deep history of how race came to be socially constructed, but I'd love to hear from your perspective, this idea of language and creating it into being. So we're gonna take a quick break. And when we return, Attorney Robinson will elaborate a little bit more. This is the Dismantle Racism Show. I'm your host, the Reverend Dr. TLC. We'll be right back. Are you a business owner? Do you want to be a business owner? Do you work with business owners? Hi, I'm Stephen Fry, your small and medium-sized business or SMB guy. And I'm the host of the new show, Always Friday. While I love to have fun on my show, we take those Friday feelings of freedom and clarity to discuss popular topics on the minds of SMBs today. Please join me and my various special guests on Friday at 11 a.m. on talkradio.nyc. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant, and on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. 
you on edge? Hey, we live in challenging, edgy times, so let's lean in. I'm Sandra Bargeman, the host of The Edge of Every Day, which airs each Monday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time on talkradio.nyc. Tune in live with me and my friends and colleagues as we share stories and perspectives about pushing boundaries and exploring our rough edges. That's The Edge of Every Day on Mondays at 7 p.m. Eastern Time on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC. Uplift, educate, empower. We are back with attorney Robinson and before the break, we were actually talking about how language uh, brings the non-existence into being. So attorney Robinson, I want you to talk a little bit about uh, what you and I have talked about before this philosophy of being. Talk a little bit about how racism came into being, because I think it helps us to understand How does a young man go into a store with an assault weapon and kill people because they're Black? Now, this is a deep question, and I understand. I just want our listening audience to know we won't uncover all of this answer today, but there are things that we can talk about that exist today that would uh, bring that to bear. But I think it's important for us to go back to the history a bit of our country and to talk about this idea that uh, this philosophy of being that helps us to understand how do we get to this point where that would happen? You have to unmute yourself. Yes. um, I taught a course called Race and Justice. And um, one of the textbooks I used was Michelle Alexander's book, The New Jim Crow. And I believe in chapter two, she she distinguishes, she talks about how um, how race was birthed, the, you know, when 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 the concept of, of race got born mm-hmm. in 1675, when uh, Nathaniel Bacon, I believe, was leading a revolution against the planters elite. We call them the CEOs today. Mm-hmm. But he was challenging the the ruling class, and he had uh, white people and and black people and and red people. You know, well, well, before that, there was no black people. You know, we we just had human beings, and and we weren't separated based on race. But after he failed in this revolution, this challenging the planters elite they came up with this concept, they constructed the concept of race to drive a wedge between people so they would they would not have the ability to collaborate again and challenge their power. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so that they gave white people privileges that, uh, that uh, black people didn't have and red people didn't have. And so now you've, you have this, this um, this antagonism between people based on skin color. Right. And, and I want to be just very clear with our listeners that the term red people, because we don't use that term anymore, right. it, it was used to describe what was happening at that particular time period, that that's the way they were separating people. We, we are definitely... Um, not trying to offend the indigenous. We we'll call them the indigenous, exactly. right? Mm-hmm. You know, indigenous First Nation people. So mm-hmm. I just want to be clear that you're using the terminology that was used to describe that concept um, at that point. At that point mm-hmm. in, in time, and so really, you're you're describing that there's there's been this place of where we needed to separate people, and interestingly enough, is that when we start to separate 
people, there's always like a stepping on, right? There's a stepping on a particular group of people in order for the next person to be higher and the next person to be higher. And so, so race then to, to distinguish people, it becomes an act of racism in and of itself by doing that, right? Yes. Yeah. And then, you know, the, the concept took on a life of its own. Mm-hmm. And then it began to be manifested in how people were treated. And, yes. and then um, it became part of our culture, you know, because Black people have been over, you know, the, the, the last 400 years marginalized and socialized in such a way that we um, have, have been, been, we see ourselves as being inferior. White people see us as being inferior to them. Mm-hmm. And so we, we've had, um, you know, we, and, and we resisted that, you know, there've been, I think about 247 slave uprisings during that time period. Mm-hmm. So black people just didn't take it, you know, continually. Mm-hmm. We mm-hmm. challenged that system and- well, ultimately- I appreciate you saying that because mm-hmm. oftentimes people don't know that there were a number of uprisings and that we challenged it. But let let me just ask you this then, because I need for people to understand, if we go back to what happened in this country on Saturday, um, where this young 18-year-old can take an assault rifle and walk into a store and shoot up people, in his gear, in his GoPro gear. Talk to me a little bit. And I and I I see right away a number of, of differences between how he was handled versus how George Floyd ended up dead, or Breonna Taylor ended up dead, or Sandra Bland. Talk to us a little bit about what you have noticed in your work that would perpetuate a system that allows a young white boy to be able to do that and not uh, and not to have the same sort of respect, if you will, for black bodies. Well, you know, a lot of that is, like I said, race took on a life of its own and it gets manifested in so many different ways. And one area where it's manifested um, and, and very apparent is within our criminal justice system. And so uh, even though, for example, um, you know, research shows that people are committing crime at the same rate, but, you know, the young black man is the, you know, the poster boy for crime in America. Mm-hmm. And we know that's not true. And so whoever controls the narrative has the power. And because uh, in the interest of economics and capitalism, like you were saying, that there's somebody got to be on the bottom. Mm-hmm. And because uh, the people on the bottom on the bottom, they have to um, work harder, they get compensated less, we're marginalized and undervalued. Mm-hmm. And that um, propels this, this capitalistic system. Mm-hmm. And uh, because that's how 1% of the population can control you know, 90% of the wealth. Mm. So mind boggling. And so this this young man, you know, he's been socialized and to see black people as a threat Mm -hmm. for his white supremacy. Mm -hmm. And out of that feeling a threat, you know, he he acted out of that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Based on how he was raised. Right. And, 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 and so here's what I want to be clear about for our listening audience, because we can say based on how he's been raised. And what I think that that does is that for some white people, they'll say, well, I wasn't raised like that. So I don't have those same thoughts about black people. Mm-hmm. And the truth of the matter is that we're all in this vortex. We've all been socialized in that way to think that white is supreme. That doesn't mean that we all believe it, but we've all been socialized. I mean, even there are ways in which we as people of color can sometimes feed into that. I won't, we won't get into that today, but what, there are lots of things that we can talk about where we've internalized 
mm-hmm. racism. But what I want people to be clear about and what I try to teach about when in, in the courses that I teach, I think people will look at that young man and say, I'm different. And what I want people to understand, you may be different that you won't walk in and shoot up Black folks, but there may be some ways that you are perpetuating that Blacks are less than, and and people need to see how that happens. And I think that what you're talking about in this um, concept of the philosophy of being and how we're socialized is that it's automatic. So that it's automatic that you lock your car door when you're driving through certain neighborhoods, or even if you're driving through your own neighborhood and you see some black people walking, it's automatic if you pull your purse, you know, closer to you because a black man just got on the elevator or that you're going to cross the street. Or if you're on a train and you're getting on the train and you see a black person sitting in a seat, you're going to pass that black person instead of, especially if it's a black man, right? I'm just giving the day-to-day examples. And I think that it's important for folks to, to not look at that person and think that he's an extreme. He's an extremist, of course. He's a terrorist. But what I want folks to understand, and particularly white folks, is take a look at your day-to-day practices and how this philosophy of being, the language that we use, mm-hmm. you know, you can see I get, you know, excited and fired up about, about this conversation because I think in order for us to end racism, we have to heal ourselves and to begin to see ourselves in this vortex that, that you're talking about. And that's why it's so difficult you know, for people to take responsibility for what we have right now in terms of racism. Like Black people so far, we've been bearing the burden of that. Like I show up in a, in a white environment and I have to carry on my shoulders the, you know, the, the, the possibility of being a threat for people in that room, mm-hmm. all right? Before I walked into the room, they were, uh, r- ethnic groups, right? Mm-hmm. But when I walk in, they're white people. Mm-hmm. So when a black man shows up, white people show up. Before that, they may have been, you know, uh, whatever European ethnic group that they were. Right, right. <laughs> but and and but it's so hard to talk about because people don't want to see themselves as as being the perpetrator or mm-hmm. or the person who's who's creating this. Mm-hmm. However, but you know, you can be, I don't want to use the word guilty, mm-hmm. I, responsible just by your acts of omission. You know, unless you're doing something, unless you're doing something to what, like the title of this talk is dismantling. Mm-hmm. You know, unless we we're doing something to dismantle it, then your acts of omission will allow racism to persist. Exactly, exactly. And you know what? So we have to take a break. But when when we come back, I I think there are very real things that people can do, particularly if you could talk to us about maybe what are some differences even in law in terms of how Black people are treated versus how white people are treated. And please know that when I say Black people, I'm actually talking about people of color color. um, in general, but but even within people of color. Mm -hmm. Black people are still still at the bottom in, the re- in terms of how people view us because, you know, we've heard those statements. Well, at least I'm not Black, yes. right? And so mm-hmm. people, you know, poor white people say it and then other, you know, people of color will say, well, at least I'm not Black because that's what we've done in this country. And so when we come back, if you could talk to us, you know, just maybe even in terms of, You've done a lot of work with mediation with police officers and you, what are some of the things that you notice, some day-to-day things that you notice in terms of how uh, black and brown folks are, are treated? So we're going to take a quick break and we'll come back and talk about that. This is the Dismantle Racism Show. I am your host, the Reverend Dr. TLC. We'll be right back. Howdy, I am Joseph Franklin McElroy, host of the new podcast, Gateway to the Smokies. It airs on talkradio.nyc every Tuesday night from 6 p.m. to 7. 
Every episode is dedicated to memorable experiences in the Great Smoky Mountains National Park and surrounding areas. This show features experts and locals who will expound upon the richness of culture, history, and adventure that awaits you in the Smokies. Tune in every Tuesday from 6 p.m. to 7 on talkradio.nyc. Are you passionate about the conversation around racism? Hi, I'm Reverend Dr. TLC, host of the Dismantle Racism Show, which airs every Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern on talkradio.nyc. Join me and my amazing guests as we discuss ways to uncover, dismantle, and eradicate racism. That's Thursdays at 11 o'clock a.m. on talkradio.nyc. Are you a small business trying to navigate the COVID-19 related employment laws? Hello, I'm Eric Sauver, employment law business law attorney and host of the new radio show, Employment Law Today. On my show, we'll have guests to discuss the common employment law challenges business owners are facing during these trying times. Tune in on Tuesday evenings from 5 p.m. to 6 p.m. Eastern time on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC at www.talkradio.nyc. Now broadcasting 24 hours a day. We're back with my guest today, attorney Charles Robinson. And before the break, we were actually uh, talking a bit about the shooting that occurred in Buffalo, New York this past weekend, but talking about the ways in which people of color, particularly Black people, are treated in the criminal justice system versus white people. And earlier, uh, attorney Robinson, when I was talking, I mentioned uh, just very briefly how this young man was apprehended and, and there are images, you know, of the police standing calmly around this man who's just shot up all these people. And we know that there are people like George Floyd who had a counterfeit $20 bill and how that escalated, whether he had mental health issues or not, that's beside the point. But that escalated into a knee on his neck in killing him. And he's just one of many. So we see that people approach us very differently because, as you mentioned, when you walk into a room, you're seen as a threat. Your mere presence is seen as a threat. But here's a person who clearly is dangerous and people are not feeling threatened. Talk to us about some other things that you've noticed in the criminal justice system, because we want to educate people so that folks know that we're not making this stuff up. There are things that happen all the time. Well, the reason I ended up in law school in the first place is I was a teacher in the classroom and uh, a junior high school in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And I had been um, a student in that, uh, in that school. In fact, I was the first student to graduate from that junior high school to come back and teach there. And um, when I was teaching there, I noticed that, and there were a few of the aides um, who worked with us, we had 1,600 students where the capacity was 900. So we had 700 more students in the, in the school and they were supposed to be there, which um, is one of those structural systemic uh, problems that, that we have in our society. That was just one example. And uh, after teaching for two years, I, um, I was so upset because I was working on a master's degree in, in school psychology as well. So I gave all, and I was just about complete with that, but I gave it all up and I said, I'm going to law school so I could come back and run for school board because, you know, something's got to change. And I ended up um, in law school after my first year, I decided I don't want to be a lawyer, but since I'm here, I'm going to complete this process because I, um, I didn't want, I didn't see myself ch chasing ambulances. And then I realized that I really didn't like public speaking. 
So I wasn't going to go into politics because <laughs> I didn't see myself as someone who was, you know, great in, in public. I was I had a fear of public speaking. So I didn't get involved in politics like I had planned to. But I ended up being an administrative law judge. And then that job that job ended up um, uh, into something else. But when I applied for the job, I um, I was on the top of the list, like uh, among the top three for an interview. But when I checked with the um, with the state of Wisconsin, they couldn't. The day before my my inter the day before the closing of the application process, they couldn't find my application. Right, so it, they had tossed it, obviously. So, but I had one day to actually reapply, and I got the job. But that's just one example of, of my experience. And prior to that, when I was in undergraduate school, after um, my my three years in my junior year, there was a riot on campus in 1969. I wasn't involved. I was in a class that night, of taking a night night course. But my name was implemented, and I lost a whole academic year. I was faced with two felonies and a misdemeanor, only because um, I was among um, the black males on campus. We had fifty black students at that college, at Whitewater University, Whitewater State University at the time. It was called. And so they took all of the photographs of all the black men on, on campus and had this white fraternity pick out who they could identify in court. And I had played um, football for three years. I was the only black guy on the football team for three years. So I was identifiable in court, right? I mean, right. people would chat my name in the stands. So um, they... Um, they suspended me from school. I, whole, I lost the whole academic year. And so even though your teacher could vouch for you being in class? Well, they exactly. And yeah. at the scene of the crime, because when I found out what was happening, I ran downtown to the scene. A police officer pulls me to the side and says, Coach Perk, he's, the, the name of the coach is Perkins. He said, Perk wouldn't like for you to be involved in this. Stand over here with me. So I thought I had a great alibi, right? <laughs> but I heard about this retaliation. It was a fight at the gym where some newly recruited Black freshmen or you know, African-American uh, students who were playing an intramural basketball game got into a scuffle. And it turned out to be like they were overwhelmed by like 100 white kids versus like nine Blacks or African American students, and two girls were involved in that situation. And so, when the Black Student Union found out about it, they, you know, they wanted to retaliate. Mm. You know what's what what's amazing about the story that you're sharing with us, the narrative of your life. Some people will listen to this story and say, "Oh, that's the stuff that happened back then." misidentifying Black folks. And what I want people to really take away from your story, and I'm sure you have other accounts based on, on some of the work that you've done with youth, youth and police, is that this is something that happens all the time. It still happens that folks are misidentified, that people are assumed, Black people, Black youth, Black men, mm -hmm. are assumed to be guilty by their very presence. And, and, and that's what I want people to really, really take away from this. Because when Michael Brown was in the store, he was assumed to be guilty. Trayvon Martin walking down the street was assumed to be guilty. And that's what people need to understand, that we are assumed to be guilty based on our skin color. It has nothing to do with how we show up. Whereas white people typically are presumed to be innocent. And that's the mm -hmm. thing that, that when we talk to people about uncovering and dismantling is that we all have our parts to do. And so we don't need to say to ourselves, well, I'm not a terrorist, I'm not an extremist, I wouldn't walk into a store and do X, Y, and Z, but we become conscious of how racism show up, shows up 
in our day-to-day lives. And then we say, I'm going to do better about being who I am. I'm going to do better. So this is another thing that, that I see popping up with this is that this idea of assault weapons, this idea of our second right amendments, second amendments, uh, second amendments, Mm -hmm. you know, it is for white people and not for black people. So we can take an instance of where we can see people like this, this terrorist, we can see uh, people like Kyle Rittenhouse, who can walk through a crowd with an assault weapon and not be stopped. But Philando Castile, who tells the officer, even though it was an officer of color, he says, you know, when I have to go into my glove compartment, he says to him, I have a gun. I want you to know that Mm. so that you know. And he had a right to have that gun. But he's saying to him, I want you to know this so that I don't end up dead. And then he ends up dead. You see, the laws are not for us. And so we we talked about this a little bit. Talk a little bit about that Second Amendment. Uh, Well, you know, the Second Amendment was a compromise. And when you do legal research to find out the intention of a law, you know, the real intention of the law, you oftentimes would start with the legislative um, intent by looking at the committee notes. And so when you when you when you uh, investigate the Second Amendment, you'll find that the committee notes are very, very thin, that the guy who was responsible for creating that, they say he was an alcoholic and he was not very competent. And so the committee notes on the Second Amendment, very, very thin. And but we know that the militia and, 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 and the Second Amendment says that, um, you know, we have a right to bear arms. And that's basically for the militia, which at that time was the slave patrols, right? They wanted to make sure that the plantation system stayed intact. So they had a system of slave patrols, which was called the the militia. And that was before we had a strong standing army, like the US Army, like we have right now. And so the various states before they came into the union, the federated states, the United States of America, they were independent states and they wanted to keep their own militia. And so the compromise was, okay, we'll let Virginia and some of these Southern states because they were economically necessary to be involved in the federated states, United States. So they wanted them to come in to ratify the, the, the constitution and um, so they allowed them to keep their militia. And that's what the Second Amendment is based on, that the militia has a right to bear arms. The states have a right to bear arms, but not to have people armed with AK, whatever. Right. <laughs> and, and all of these machine guns that can, you know, create mass murder. Mm-hmm. That, was, that was not the, the intention. But the Supreme Court, and uh, there were two cases, one involving Chicago, right to bear arms. They were trying to regulate handguns. And the Supreme Court um, uh, decided that that was, you know, that people had a right to bear those arms mm-hmm. based on the Second Amendment. In the same way with Washington, D.C., which used to be the murder capital of the world. Right. And they were right. trying to regulate handguns. And the Supreme Court came down with uh, saying, no, that people have a right to bear arms. Right. And, 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 and there's so much we could talk about as it relates to that, because we know that there's violence that occurs uh, in, in, um, in, in our inner cities, you know, for, and, and there are a lot of, you call it the murder capital of, of the world in terms of DC when it used to be, and now mm-hmm. Chicago. And actually there was a, a a shooting uh, just very recently in Wisconsin, or was it Wisconsin? 30 people, 30 people 30 got people. shot last weekend in, 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 in exactly. Milwaukee, where well, I live. And we don't, and didn't hear about it, right? We don't people. hear about that as much. And right. that's, a, that's a crime in and of itself as well. We could, talk, we could do a lot in terms of talking about mm-hmm. the laws that are in place. And we can talk a lot about who suffers as a result of those laws being put in into place. Now, mind you, the 30 people who got shot, we know that some of those guns were illegal, uh, of course, but 
um, that's a conversation that we might have to invite you back to have again another day. We do have to take a quick break, but I do just want to just mention really quickly before the break in Michelle Alexander's book Mm -hmm. called The New Jim Crow. Mm -hmm. It's been out for a while. She talks about how our criminal justice system is a way basically of keeping us enslaved and keeping us in this system of Jim Crow, because what people need to understand is that the penalties for being a black person, whether you commit the crime or not, if they, if you're, if you're found guilty of it, you stay in jail for a lot longer. You go to jail for crimes that Uh, white people committing the same crimes don't go to jail for as long in some cases, particularly if we think about the crack epidemic. So we see all the people who went to jail during the crack epidemic, as opposed to getting help, whereas white people at the same time were using cocaine, those people didn't go to jail. We also see now with the opioid crisis, people's tendency to want to take care. People can come and they can exchange their needles with no questions asked in certain parts of the country. Mm -hmm. Things are different for Black folks who have the same sorts of issues. But we do have to take a break. I just wanted to throw that out there because I think the more informed people are, the more people and by people, I mean, Black folks, we we can do better for ourselves. But I mean, white people can take the veil off of their eyes to say, wait a minute, I didn't know all of this stuff was happening. And so the the goal of this show is to open up, you know, your eyes to see it so that when you go to the polls and vote, when you make decisions that you feel are just for your your interests, Mm -hmm. think about the broader community, the wider community, how we're all impacted. Yes, it's your right, but what's your responsibility? We have to take a quick break. And uh, when we come back, I'll invite you to have some final comments. This is the Dismantle Racism Show. We'll be right back. Hey, everybody. It's Tommy D, the nonprofit sector connector coming at you from my attic. Each week here on talkradio.nyc, I host a program, Philanthropy in Focus. Nonprofits impact us each and every day, and it's my focus to help them amplify their message and tell their story. Listen each week at 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time until 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time right here on talkradio.nyc. In a post-COVID world, you may have many unanswered questions regarding your health. Are you looking to live a healthier lifestyle? Do you have a desire to learn more about mental health and enhance your quality of life? Or do you just want to participate in self-understanding and awareness? I'm Frank R. Harrison, host of Frank About Health, and each Thursday, I will tackle these questions and work to enlighten you. Tune in every Thursday at 5 p.m. on talkradio.nyc, and I will be Frank About Health to advocate for all of us. Calling all pet lovers... On the Professionals and Animal Lovers show, we believe the bond between animal lovers is incredibly strong. It mirrors that bond between pets and their owners. Through this program, we come together to learn, educate, and advocate. Join us live every Wednesday at 2 p.m. at talkradio.nyc. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC at www.talkradio.nyc. Now broadcasting 24 hours a day. back with the Dismantle Racism Show. As always, the hour passes so quickly. I want to give a shout out to one of my listeners, Jay Wilson. Hi, Jay. How you doing? Thank you so much for joining the show. I really appreciate all my listeners out there. And so when you uh, join us uh, by Facebook, of course, you can always write a comment into the to the chat there and we can get to you if you have questions in particular about anything that we're talking about. Uh, We would love to to take those questions. But as we prepare to end the show, Attorney Robinson, I want to ask you, what 
final thoughts would you offer about uh, racism, the construction of it, racial justice, anything that we've been talking about? I want to give you an opportunity to share. Well, you know, I, I would love to see the dismantling of racism in my lifetime, right? And a lot of people say, well, that's not going to happen because, you know, it's been here for 400 years. It's going to take a long time to eradicate it. I think we have the tools available to do that now. You know, now that we have access to social media, because keep in mind, this is a conversation. Mm. And whoever controls the narrative has the power. You know, um, there were some people who, who um who did landmark who landmark graduates created um this guy named Z steve zaffron wrote a book called the three laws of performance hmm. okay and law one is people's actions are directly correlated to how things occur law two how things occur occur in language through language mm -hmm. and then law three is you can transform how things occur with future-based language, mm -hmm. all right? So just using those three laws of performance, you know, we have, once we really understand that and that uh, human beings are going to act based on how things occur, mm -hmm. all we need to do is is uh, is create the narrative. Right. Cause you know, a shift I in the narrative. I, I love that. And that's that's one of the things, you know, people will will say to me because I teach on this stuff. They'll say, do you think it's even possible to dismantle? And they'll say, when you use that term dismantle, it seems so overwhelming to me. And I and I'll say the same thing that you're saying, maybe in different terms, is that if we each do our part, though, you do have to change your mindset. You have to change what comes out of your mouth and you have to open up to see it in a, do, a new way. And so I love this idea of changing the language. And, you know, when I'm teaching dismantling racism, yes, I'm very passionate about what I'm talking about, but I do it from this place also of love because you oh. began the conversation talking about in the beginning was the word, right? And that we're all, you know, spiritual beings, basically. I see us as spiritual beings. And so for me, the language of love is what I use. You, you know, know, everything I, has its opposite. Now, love is the most powerful force that we have. Mm -hmm. And, every, and the, the other side of, of that is indifference. Yes. If we could, if we could show, if we could have a, a virtual mirror for white people to see who they are, who they are, mm -hmm. like how they're being indifferent. Yes. To race. Right. And then enroll them to take responsibility because they're the ones who can dismantle racism. Right. They're the ones who should be taking the, the leadership, the responsibility. Exactly. And so and so that's I think that's really a critical issue for us to say as we're ending the show. You know, we know that to end racial separation, it takes all of us. But because of the power structure that we are all involved in, whether we are born into it, you know, in terms of privilege or whether we're born into it, where we are marginalized. We know that in this particular structure that we have right now, that white people are the ones with privilege and that the indifference of racism makes a big difference. That's why on this show and when I'm teaching, because many of my uh, participants happen to be white people. It's about using your privilege, using your power mm -hmm. to change the narrative change and the to narrative. believe that you can do it. Because many times, as you're saying, people say, but it's too overwhelming. How am I going to do it? You can do it little by little. If you begin to speak a different language, like you, you're saying, right. if, you understand, if you first understand the language that yes. you're speaking, and then speak a different language. And what what you resist persists. So yeah. as long as we keep trying to resist and work with racism, you know, it's going to persist. Mm. So it's a matter of, of overriding that conversation with a new conversation, yes. a new narrative that we have to create together as a village, as mm -hmm. a global village.
Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So real quick, Attorney Robinson, uh, how can people get in touch with you? Um, I'm on Facebook. I'm on Twitter. I don't use Twitter a lot. I'm old school. You know that. So <laughs> a lot of the social media, I'm just learning how to do. I do have a website um, on Fatherhood Presence, www.fatherhoodpresence.com. Uh, we're trying to work with, um, with the Black family mm-hmm. because it's so important for our children to have access to their parents and to have education, you know, it- and to have parenting, which is the foundation of the socialization education process. And mm-hmm. a lot of our children just aren't getting it. So I created this, this online um, course mm-hmm. that I want to share with the world. Uh, it's going to be a 20-hour course on peace, healing, and, co- and collaboration within the context of co-parenting. Mm-hmm. And that's actually a part of your theme and your purpose, peace, healing, and collaboration. So I want to invite our guests to please look up attorney Charles Robinson on Facebook. He's based in Wisconsin. Of course, we have information about him as well. And you can find that on Talk Radio NYC or on sacredintelligence.com, where I hope that you will go check out my most recent book and check out the courses that I offer as well. I want to thank you so much for being a guest on the show today. I want to thank my listeners, and I want to invite you to stay tuned for the Conscious Consultant Hour with Sam Leibowitz, where he helps you to walk through life with the greatest of ease and joy. So be well, be safe, be encouraged. Until next time, bye for now. business owner? Do you want to be a business owner? Do you work with business owners? Hi, I'm Stephen Fry, your small and medium-sized business or SMB guy, and I'm the host of the new show, Always Friday. While I love to have fun on my show, we take those Friday feelings of freedom and clarity to discuss popular topics on the minds of SMBs today. Please join me and my various special guests on Friday at 11 a.m. on talkradio.nyc. Are you on edge? Hey, we live in challenging, edgy times, so let's lean in. I'm Sandra Bargeman, the host of The Edge of Every Day, which airs each Monday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time on talkradio.nyc. Tune in live with me and my friends and colleagues as we share stories and perspectives about pushing boundaries and exploring our rough edges. That's The Edge of Every Day on Mondays at 7 p.m. Eastern Time on talkradio.nyc. informed about menopause and how it impacts on your life? Hi, I'm Pat Duckworth, women's health strategist and host of the Hot Women Rock radio show, empowering women leaders at menopause. Join me every Thursday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. UK Time on talkradio.nyc for interviews with inspirational women who will share their top tips to rock your world. In a post-COVID world, you may have many unanswered questions regarding your health. Are you looking to live a healthier lifestyle? Do you have a desire to learn more about mental health and enhance your quality of life? Or do you just want to participate in self-understanding and awareness? I'm Frank R. Harrison, host of Frank About Health, and each Thursday, I will tackle these questions and work to enlighten you. Tune in every Thursday at 5 p.m. on talkradio.nyc, and I will be Frank About Health to advocate for all of us. Gateway to the Smokies. It airs on talkradio.nyc every Tuesday night from 6 p.m. to 7. Every episode is dedicated to memorable experiences in the Great Smoky Mountains National Park and surrounding areas. This show features experts and locals who will expound upon the richness of culture, history, and adventure that awaits you in the Smokies. Tune in every Tuesday from 6 p.m. to 7 on talkradio.nyc. 
You're listening to Talk Radio NYC. Uplift, educate, empower. 